Welcome back to Geek Life, Pandamanga.com's very own podcast. I'm JP. As always with me is my fearless co-host, the Brian Excelsior. <laughs> Visiting with us today. <laughs> Visiting with us today as always on the comics podcast is Joe. Hello, everybody. And then a new member, Pinku. Hey, what's up? So today we're going to talk about a couple different comics. Like we said on the games podcast last time, due to the kind of massive distance between podcasts of the same subject, we have a lot of opportunity to go through some new material, so we have some good stuff to talk about each time. So each one of us has at least one comic that we'd like to talk about, and specifically one that we would like to review. Now, several of us have been able to go through and check out the other comics that uh, we've all kind of brought to the table. Um, some of us have been able to read all of them. All of the the work. Some of us have only been able to read pieces and parts, but we've all got a little bit of experience and you know good things to say about it, so we can kind of know what we're talking about. Yeah, everyone can throw in two cents, so we can afford nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so before we move on to the comics reviews, a little housekeeping. So first up on housekeeping, just like we said last time, we have confirmed and committed to a release date. July 4th at 8 a.m., the site will go live with comic updates. Woo! Woo! Good job. You know, watching oh, the goodness. counter, though, makes me really anxious. Yeah, I put on a counter <laughs> the other day thinking, oh, that'd be kind of fun. Some... Actually, when we went to see Prometheus to review it on the site, mm-hmm. we were there with Air Plus Recordings Tiger Paw, and he leaned over and he's like, man, a bunch of the guys that we have featured on your on your show, they're like, when are the comics coming out? I keep going to the series <laughs> section. It looks cool. Let's check it out. And so I was like, yeah, I sh- probably should put something up saying it's coming out this time. So I went on and just like, you know, put put just kind of a title, you know, co- regular comic updates began on the 4th of July. And then I realized, I know what I should do. A countdown. And in <laughs> retrospect, probably not the best choice because every time I open the site, which is like manically every day, I look at it. It's like, oh, God, 17 days left. And the milliseconds flicking by is like right. holy shit, holy shit! I'm running out of time. I know, right? And the milliseconds are the milliseconds. It seemed like exciting, but yeah. it's really just nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're planning on 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 coming live with regular comic updates starting on the fourth of July, eight a.m. The first one to come out, I believe, will be probably Artist Monk mm-hmm. on that first day. The uh, release schedule, tentatively, I'm not going to commit to anything yet with the release schedule. That will become clear when we actually release. But uh, the Dinner and Dragons comic, which is written by our friend Joe here, and then illustrated by myself, will be coming out uh, on an every other week basis. Mm-hmm. Not by month, not by monthly, because that, that gets messy. Every other week it will be coming out. Yeah. So it'll be on the weeks that there is no podcast. So a little bit of extra stuff to throw so in there. So you've always got something to come to the site for. Exactly. Always got something to come to the site for. And so the day, the weeks without podcasts will have, we'll have three releases. will be Artistic Monk and Dinner and Dragons. And hopefully I'll get the rest of the content from Decaster for the terrible suicidal monkey machine. So we'll actually have three releases on the weeks without podcasts. And then including the podcast, also three releases on the weeks with podcasts. Yeah, when's he giving us a kid with a cape? You know, I don't know. Uh, we've only talked about the monkey terrible machine. suicidal monkey machine, mm. but he has shown interest in putting that out. He definitely wants to do Cape of the Cape, and he said that there's more that he would like to do with us, but I guess we'll just kind of have to see how the relationship grows. We mm. actually got an opportunity to catch up with Decaster. That's right. What was that? Uh, Sack yeah. Anime? No, Sack no, Sack Anime, anime is, is coming up soon in August. I thought that was the one you just went to. No, it wasn't the one we just went to. 
what was the one that was just there? SACCON. Okay. That was what it was called. But it was basically an anime convention, more right. or less. Actually, and Billy West was there, which was amazing. We actually got to get a signed <laughs> right? Yeah, we, we, we got there a little too late and didn't get to see his his you know his interview and everything, which was kind of heart crushing. But it was really cool to meet him and talk to him. We waited until the massive crowds, rightfully so, in front of his booth had kind of calmed down and we had an opportunity to go up and talk a little bit and you know, tell him how much his work has meant to us over the years and how much of a kind of bedrock foundation of the humor in our group of friends that all of the stuff he's worked on has really been a part of. And he seemed really genuinely appreciative of that. It wasn't like oh, yeah. some kind of canned answer like, oh, thanks. And it really seemed like, I mean, really genuinely heartfelt, like, wow, that really means a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah. And that dude is everywhere. He, he is was, everywhere. He was signing comics at every comic book store I went to when I lived down south. He's at all the conventions from, you know, San Diego up to Seattle. I always see his name on the dockets at everything I see in any comic I pick up. Yeah, he hits the, he hits the comic convention scene and the comic book scene hard, I think. Yeah. Which is great because he's well-loved and incredibly oh, yeah. talented. Mm -hmm. Very cool guy. So, let's see. Oh, and tied in with the launch update... O'Brien has decided to make a commitment to not shave his massive Asian beard. What? <laughs> Until the, so the, the, the Brian, if you don't know, when he's not on the podcast, actually he talks like a dis. It's, okay. it's more like my R's sound like W's. But yes, yes, I actually do have a bit of an Asian accent. Yeah. No, no, the, the Brian is half of Vietnamese, for those of you that are curious. So now you can fantasize about him correctly. Yes. <laughs> but it's already been how many days since you shaved? Oh, like four or five. Uh, <laughs> four or five. <laughs> Sorry, this, this, I, I didn't mean to laugh at your beard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Epic it's five really o'clock shadow. It looks like when I get like at five o'clock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't have much facial hair and it doesn't really grow that fast. It was kind of to prove to JP that I can't grow one of those, like, ancient Chinese wide man, uh, wispy mustache and beard kind yeah, of we, thing. Yeah, we've decided that he needs to have, like, a long, like, you know, Asian kung fu master beard. And, and he's yeah, like, I can't do it. Flick over his shoulder. When exactly. He's like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, uh, I gotta say, having been raised Asian, too, um, you probably could if your mom yelled at you a lot. Yeah, yeah, that, that is true. Um, but well, that's why his hair's white. Yeah. Right now. Uh, but, uh, and the rest of it's gone. Uh, <laughs> but when July 4th comes around, it'll be 21 days. So I'll have gone three weeks without shaving. I am going to look terrible. You're going to be haggard, man. Yeah. It's going to look really bad. It's going to be completely great. I can't wait. I can't wait to see you at the launch party. launch party. Actually trying to get that to happen over in SAC where some friends of ours just moved in. So hopefully that can be kind of a combo thing. Also, we have finally gotten our lazy butts onto Tumblr. You can find our Tumblr page at pandamanga.tumblr.com. Luckily, that hasn't been taken. You know, sometimes it's funny, like on Twitter, I think, and Facebook, Pandamanga as, you know, the, you know, Pandamanga at whatever, taken. But some places don't have it, so that's kind of nice. You know, the funny thing is a couple times I've been able to get the Pandamanga login, but not the Pandamanga, like, subdomain. So, I don't know, whatever that is about. But... So Tumblr is pandamanga.tumblr.com, and then we finally transitioned over to doing the Facebook thing the right way. For a long time, we had a Facebook profile, which Facebook frowns upon, frowny face. 
what we're supposed to have is a Facebook page for a web company or you know web page. Right. So now uh, all of you guys that uh, very generously went and liked our page on pandamanga.com, please go back and do it again. It's officially <laughs> linked to our Pandamanga Facebook page now, and you can find our our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash pandamanga comics. That's plural. You can so, also just go to www.pandamanga.com <laughs> <laughs> and click the like button. Yeah, on the side, on the right sidebar, we actually have the correct widget there that is connected to our page officially instead of just liking the web page that we're on, which my stupid butt hadn't done correctly. So I figured we'd get that in order before we actually launched. Oops. <laughs> anyway, one last piece of news. We have sort of changed our strategy in regards to the convention scene, at least for this first year. We were really wanting to have a booth at Ape, and after talking with uh, Decaster and a bunch of other people and kind of having a group talk about it, we've decided to to try and generate some buzz in a little bit more effective way, which would be going there as press and covering it. So we're going to go around with our handy-dandy, you know, field recorder and record different uh, interviews and stuff and press updates and kind of impressions and things from all the people there as well as uh, me and then eventually put them up on the site, make a little podcast about that, do interview things, link to them, kind of network back and forth within the community. You know, that seems like maybe a, a better use of our resources instead of dropping almost $300 on a table and then sitting there and nobody having any clue who the hell we are. Uh, you know, eventually the Panda Manga table would be more of a portfolio review table where you could check out and see if, you know, you'd like to work with us and put, you know, release a comic or an issue or something like that on the site. But, you know, nobody's going to want to buy Panda Manga merch because nobody knows who the hell we are yet. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the kind of general consensus and, and thought is that if we can get there in maybe a press capacity and, you know, do some interviews and build some buzz that way and, you know, make some connections and things like that. Then next time we go to a convention, it'll be like, oh, it's the Panda Manga guys. We did a review with them or we did a, you know, interview with them last time so instead I of like, who the hell are those, those guys, guys, right? So anyway, uh, for some of the smaller conventions, we may still set up a table. Um, we may actually maybe do tables that are more geared towards the comics on the site instead of a Panda Manga electronic publishers table. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so it's it's all it's all kind of new to us. We've really, you know, my experience is really kind of limited to the web design world as far as all that goes, and and really getting out there and talking to the the comic community and the independent comic community at conventions and things like that is aside from you know going just as a as a you know participant and a viewer, but actually on the other side of the table is new to me. So we're still trying to trying to figure out how to do that in the most efficient way possible and get people to know who we are and be interested in what we got and build our our viewership. So anyway, so we're going to be trying to hit SAC Anime, which is at the end of August. I think it's the 31st and then the 1st and 2nd of the following month. And that is, so that'll be Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Hopefully we'll be out there. I'm thinking maybe Friday and Saturday uh, or maybe Friday and Sunday, something like that. You know, go around, pick up some comics to review, go back, get some interviews with people, be kind of in force all in these awesome black PM t-shirts. <laughs> I like my white one. The white one's nice. Yeah. The white one's nice. Although I think that we'll probably well you know whatever anything with PM on I guess it probably work yeah. so anyway so I'll put on the hat the pants the underwear right mostly I just wanted to update everybody who was looking forward to seeing us at uh, having an actual table 
is that's probably not in the near future. We're going to maybe do that next time around when it really seems like a good choice instead of just a you know, do it to do it, because that was really kind of what it was coming down to. It's kind of expensive, and you really expect to go to those places and and sell merchandise and make money back, especially, you know, one of the big three, which would be either WonderCon, Comic-Con, or Ape. I mean, I know Ape is alternative press, and it's supposed to be small, but it's really kind of one of the mainstream conventions. Yeah, that was freaking big. It's freaking big, and it's really crazy expensive to get involved in. You know, Mm -hmm. the tables are, are about $300 in comparison to the SatCon that we were just at, which, is to be fair, was much smaller. But an artist table is like 65 bucks. That's much more reasonable to get in there and just kind of be like, all right, fine, screw it. We'll just get a table and see what happens. But almost $300, it's like, man, that's that's a lot of gear we could be getting. That's, you know, I don't know. So it just didn't seem like a wise use of our very limited resources. But someday we won't have limited resources and we'll be there in force and, you know, reviewing portfolios and being obnoxious. So <laughs> you can look forward to that hopefully next year sometime. Anyway, so that's it. That's it for housekeeping. So first up on our reviews is Gonzo, and Joe is, brought this one in today. So why don't you tell a little, us a little bit about the, the, the graphic novel Gonzo. Okay, Gonzo, a graphic biography of Hunter S. Thompson, uh, written by Will Bingley and drawn by Anthony Hope Smith. It's a biography of the earlier career of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, the writer, journalist. He's a doctor. Doctor? Really? Doctor of journalism, yeah. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. And absolute psychopath. <laughs> uh, the accounts of anyone who have ever dealed with him say, don't give him your phone number. Because he will, well, rest in peace, sir. He would have called you at four in the morning and told you to come out to his ranch in Colorado because he needed to show you something. He, he was total complete mental case yeah but brilliant the, the the i think that popular culture wise people would probably most recognize a, a rather caricaturized version of him but he was supposedly the main character played by johnny depp in fear and loathing in las vegas that's right and based on his uh his book fear and loathing in las vegas uh which was a series of articles printed in rolling stone you know he was out there to find the american dream and more or less just got really wasted in Las Vegas and tried to make sense of America's playground and, you know, what we considered our values, that Vegas was the, you know, the pinnacle of recreation at the time. Right. And also, I believe it's where the Buffalo Roam, where Bill Murray is playing Hunter S. Thompson. Uh-huh. I've I seen haven't that seen that one either. Okay, um, Yes. Uh, Bill Murray does a pretty good account of him. So, yeah, yeah, I heard it's really good, but I, I haven't seen in, it yet. In the intro for the book, it says that Bill Murray's a dead ringer in that one of him. You know, the the interviews I've seen with him, there's a little bit of Johnny Depp, a little bit of Bill Murray, but it's just real hard to capture... Hunter. The, the intenseness <laughs> of him. Like, those guys... They they get the mannerisms down. They get they get the speech down pretty well. You know, it's, it's kind of like a drunk Shatner, but <laughs> <laughs> he seems like uh, was really quite the character. Yeah, but uh, when you're looking at this man talk, and he's staring at the camera, you can like see the fires of hell burning, but <laughs> in his brain, <laughs> and you're almost 
terrified that he's going to leap through the screen and, and get at you. So Gonzo follows Thompson through his early years before he got picked up by Rolling Stone and his work on the Kentucky Derby, which got him the job at Rolling Stone. Right. The Kentucky Derby piece I've never read, but it's supposed to be his like definitive work. So I've got to hunt that down at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that follows him through his dealing with the Hells Angels, where he was practically a member. He was until, pretty intimately involved. He was really in, intimately involved until they beat him senseless and left him for dead on the side of the road because they thought he was snitching on them. Right. Yeah, it makes you really not glorify those guys if you ever did. Yeah, it, definitely. It, yeah, it paints them really scary. Which and was what's interesting in, in this graphic novel is how it starts out talking about how romanticized they were initially. Mm-hmm. And, and so, how, how he felt kind yeah. of like they were you oh, know, yeah. sort of an idealistic version of who they really were. Yeah, and trying to dispel all the media myths that, you know, they're just violent criminals, which they actually weren't, but they were violent people. Then does a brief stint on his adventures in Las Vegas, which chronicled everywhere else. Yeah, and so I was actually kind of glad that they didn't spend a good chunk of the book on that, Mm -hmm. even even though part of me was kind of expecting it, you know, but it was really maybe five, ten pages if that, yeah, not not very much. Which is great because there's so much other parts of his life and story that I am not familiar with at all. Yeah, how involved he was in all the hippie generation stuff, right? And, uh, oh, the just nightmare account of getting the merry pranksters and hell's angels to party together, right? Yeah, but the book overall, if you're not familiar with Thompson, it could probably be kind of dull. Because you're following a journalist around. You know, aside from uh, comic book DMZ, I, there's not a lot of action that can go on in, in journalism. You know, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of action <laughs> that'll follow a journalist around. You know, right. they're, they're there to just watch. Well, except for Thompson. You know, he's part of the gonzo journalism movement, kind of one of the founding fathers of it where you're supposed to immerse yourself really deeply and get really introspective about the subject you're covering. Right. Well, actually, I kind of have to disagree with that. Mm-hmm. One of my cousins is actually a reporter for one of the big national news outlets. And so he goes all over the world. And when he's outgoing to uh, report on certain things, it's really cool because he'll send back emails to everyone and talk about what's going on, the daily life and all that sort of stuff. It's almost kind of like doing a gonzo journalism thing, but it's Mm -hmm. just for his friends. Some of the most fascinating stuff. A lot better than some of the things he has to report on. It's the little intricate things that he's talking about that's really, really fun and entertaining. Well, like I was saying, the Gonzo stuff gets really immersive, and you get details that you wouldn't get with an objective news report. But uh, reading back through this kind of made me want to pick up the books again, and you know, really heighten my appreciation for what I've already read. You know, I saw that um, the Rum Diaries just came out on Netflix, so I finally and that's could... him also, right? Uh, that was his only novel. Mm. Again, loosely based on his own experience in Puerto Rico in the fifties. Right. Well, it seems like it 16. said that when it was talking in the in the book about 
about his his writing of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He was saying it was a fictional tale, but then kind of bounced around, well, mostly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it was fiction based on fact or fact based on fiction. It's kind of a blurry line with Thompson because... He spent most of it trashed out of his gourd. Exactly. And, you know, who's to say he he didn't actually become a rampaging beast in a hotel room? And <laughs> with that guy, I'd, I'd say it's possible. Yeah. We can't stop here. It's backcountry. Ah. That's the best line of that movie. <laughs> no, Hands it's down. all about we were halfway to Barstow and the drugs kicked in. I use that line all the damn time. <laughs> well, I, I actually had the pleasure of reading through all this just last night. Okay. And I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot, actually. I, I do agree that it could be considered maybe a little bit slow. Well, not slow. Slow is the wrong term. I guess if you didn't, in the beginning, kind of take a breath and go, all right, I'm, 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 I'm in it. I'm willing mm-hmm. to read this and, and let it take me where it takes me instead of expect something comic book-like out of it. Because it's really more of a biography than a yeah, comic book, but, yeah. you know. Exa- I mean, there's there's nothing really fantastical that goes on or anything like that. It's just like yeah. a graphic novel of his life, mm-hmm. you know. And so in that way, it's really interesting. And I I went straight from that to reading another comic book, a normal comic book, and I began to appreciate how very simple and few words Gonzo used mm-hmm. to to communicate a really in depth and interesting story. Yeah, focused a lot on the images provided Absolutely. To, to set the mood of it. Absolutely. Like, and just, just a couple of well-placed phrases here and there really kind of highlighted what was going on and made it very clear and absolutely. also gave sort of an introspective sort of pers- sort of look at what was going on mm-hmm. that, you know, I found really refreshing. So even though maybe there it was not as action-packed mm-hmm. as a comic book may tend to be or you would expect to be, I felt like it moved at a pretty good clip. It yeah. didn't feel like I was wading through a you know a bog trying to being weighed down by like pages and pages and pages and pages. Like you know, like you read something like Watchmen, which is amazing, but it's kind of mm-hmm. like, dude, just write a book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's so much text, and you know, again, I'm not I'm not trying to start a giant fight on the internet about Watchmen. It's <laughs> I, you know, but but there are some comic books that rely heavily on text to yeah. tell the story, and this was a lot of visual storytelling with very well placed text mm-hmm. to be able to support that. And I, I thought that that was kind of the, the, the king achievement of that book. Yeah, by the by the time it's following him through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, it's, what, like maybe 10 words per page. Right. And just, and the imagery of it makes you really sympathetic for this, like, downward spiral he's going through. Right. And it, you know, it's tragic by the end of it. Yeah, it's a great example of pictures worth a thousand words in this one. There are such few words. I mean, sometimes there's dialogue back and forth. Sometimes there's internal monologue. But a lot of it is just described in the pictures itself. It's really cool. I mean, the idea of actually having an actual biography of a person. Now, great. You know, he is granted a cartoonish person mm-hmm. with quite an adventurous life so it works great as a graphic novel but it's still brilliant the idea of having an actual biography as a graphic novel i found that concept really fascinating i think the idea of using comic book art and graphic novel style to tell stories that are more than or that are kind of outside the realm of what you would typically expect in that format is great because it's a very flexible style. I think it has a lot of opportunity to tell lots of different kinds of stories 
adult, mm -hmm. youthful and fun, you know, fantastical special effects and, you know, superheroes all the way down to horror and romance and romantic comedy. I mean, it can go to all these different places and, and clearly biography is a good place for it to go as well. And it's, mm -hmm. I just am continually glad to even in my own small way, be a part of this, you know, art style and this, and this way of, of, of communicating a story because it's just so powerful. Yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the advantages of the medium, uh, like it was mentioned, the words of the narration dialogue, that sort of thing, they sort of deteriorate towards the end of the book. I haven't read towards the end of the book, but I guess one of the advantages of the comic medium is the fact that you have a relationship with words and pictures. You know that just because the words are dropping off, there's still pictures. It tells you there's still a story, but at the same time, you get the sense of deterioration, which goes with the idea of a downward spiral, spiral in some man's life. Definitely. I think that's a mm -hmm. really strong way to tell it. And it might be the best way to tell it. Absolutely. I think and I didn't finish the entire uh, graphic novel, but it looked like to me that the art was kind of deteriorating as well slightly now is that just in my head or was that i felt like towards the on? end it got a little more maybe gestural it came it had more of a sort of uh less clean for example if you were to you know you know draw the line of somebody's face with you know you know nice clean heavy pen pressure with one mm -hmm. smooth line that's really clean and it kind of communicates something. It communicates a fleshy look. It communicates, um, you know, vitality and smooth skin and things like that. Oh, if yeah. you create it with lots of different lines or at a sort of fast pace or whatever, there's, that's, the, that's the cool thing about illustration and just black and white art and line art is that you have the capability of communicating a great deal with a single line. And later on, when he became more and more haggard and more and more so tired, dirty, yeah. right, exactly, that, right. that the way he was drawn... It, it was like reflecting kind of his inner state. Yeah, when he's when he's not sharp and and focused anymore. Yeah, the art does kind of soften and kind of bleed into the background, which is kind of a brilliant subconscious move, right there. Yeah, right. I noticed it too, actually. When it was mentioned, I said, "Yeah, you know, that was something notable about it." Was there was a lot of scratchiness. Yeah, I think I think that this this book in particular really connects with me specifically because I have a weakness for. For visual storytelling. I have always struggled with comic books that are incredibly wordy and are all at like eye level and they're all like, you know, six boxes on a page, you know, bang, 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 bang. Everything's symmetrical and plain and simple. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not that it's not a good, you know, it's not that, that people that do it in that style are wrong. It's just more difficult for me to really like that. I like it to be dynamic, different sizes, nice, clean frame pacing. I don't want to feel boxed in and like there's too much information. You know, if you want to talk about one that makes me feel that way big time with the art, not so much the words, One Piece uh, is incredibly busy. There's like very, there's very, very sparse amount of, of screen tones used and it's lots of pen touches and it's, it's, it's masterfully done, but it's so busy that it sometimes is just kind of like, Oh, what is happening on this page? It's so much stuff. And it's still totally enjoyable. Um, you know, I've read a great deal of the One Piece comic books, but, but there are things that are out there like that that it's just so busy. So, bu or, or like a Bleach is another one that's probably more recent. Is it so busy and so like many little dash marks and, and it's just, it's like it doesn't need, it doesn't feel clean and, and, and it just feels just congested, you know? And so the, like the, the visual, way that things work together in a comic book 
to me, hold a great deal of weight, not just in, wow, that's a cool image, but how does that image relate to the other images on the page? How does that frame work together? Do they overlap each other? How flexible are they willing to be with the actual frame? Are they going to break out of it? You know, all that sort of stuff. And there's a way to make it feel smooth and move clean and, 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 and not feel like it's like it's a heavy, slow process to, to, to learn and read the story. Mm-hmm. And this did a really good job of not feeling heavy and weighted. Yeah. Right. It, um, from a design standpoint, actually, it's if you compare uh, visual noise to like a bunch of guys yelling in a room, it's sort of what it is. You hear none of them if they're all screaming at you. But if you hear one guy yelling, then obviously you're only going to hear him. Exactly. So, Joe, let's uh, let's hear your rating from one to five issues. So I'll give it a three and a half issues just because, like I said, if you're not familiar with the man, the story is going to be a little, a little plain. You know, it, it's it's a biography. It's going to be something. And, you know, specifically for Hunter S. Thompson, you have to be interested in this man for it to make for it to even make sense because, you know, his entire life was just a complete mess. Anybody else want to throw um, in their two cents? I'm going to actually give it four and a half. I got through about 100 pages of it before I ran out of time to get here. It's a pretty good I, score. It's mm. Yeah. Uh, I was very impressed. Well, my only exposure to Hunter S. Thompson is the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And, I mean, I knew about the guy. I knew about his journalism. And so I really, really enjoyed this. I haven't read anything of his. I actually want to go back and read some of this stuff. Now, like I said before, maybe my uh, opinion of it is a little stilted because of the emails that I got from my cousin, Mm. which is kind of a gonzo style of journalism. But it was really, really interesting and entertaining. And like I said, it really makes me want to find out more about the man, read some of his articles, you know, just go more in depth into everything about this. It does make you want to learn more about it. It really does. And if you ever are able to find it, his suicide note, uh, he actually had published postmortem in Rolling Stone. It is heartbreaking. Oh, wow. It's like a five page note and it's, it's, Incredibly beautiful well and tragic <laughs> and weird all at once. Wow, that's intense. Oh. Well, I, I having read all the way through it, I, I'll throw out a, a, a the same score as Joe. I think three point five is very fair. Mm-hmm. You know that it, you know, and for the same reason. So I'm not going to reiterate them. You know, it was good. Definitely a little bit of a uh, kind of random subject or maybe less known subject. Um, you know, especially in this sort of a genre, but still really good. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, makes makes you genuinely makes you interested in the man, makes you want to learn more about his stuff, makes you want to, especially by the end when it ends in suicide, spoilers, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> that, uh, you know, it makes you go like, wow, you know, really makes you want to go back and, and learn about this man's life's work and read his read his words, his, his actual words. So who's next? Brian? Yeah. Brian? Um, we'll get into resistance right after this break. You're listening to Geek Life. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Geek Life. Next up is the Brian's review of The Resistance by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti. Take it away, Brian. So, I first was like, the way that I found this comic was I went into Comixology and which was, is, which is an app for iPhone and Android tablets and phones mm-hmm. uh, that allow you to digitally download comics. And I went to the creator-owned section, hoping to find something that was, like, indie in there. And I just found this one because, hey, uh, the first issue is free. And I am a notoriously cheap bastard. As you have mentioned. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, You know, one of my favorite sayings is, if it's free, it's me and I'll take three. So, so I read through it and was like, what the hell? I'll purchase the entire uh, trade. It's a one shot of eight issues. And it's like it, so what, 180 something. 185 pages long, about eight issues. It takes place in a dystopian future where a lot of natural resources have been used up. So, people who are over the age of 60 are no longer provided healthcare. There is regulations on how many people can be born and who's allowed to have a child. You have to you actually have to sign up and register for it. Some jobs you're actually not allowed to have children. You have very to sign contract. Population yeah, control. very limited Seriously. population because of resources. Uh, the it's like everything's run by corporations. The energy food supplies at this point in the future like crops aren't even like they're kind of mythological in that in this point because everything's just kind of given by food supplies they don't they know that at one point crops existed but they no don't exist anymore. Seen yes, well, yeah, they I haven't mean, actually a couple seen times it. the characters are like you don't really believe there's crops somewhere do yeah. you? <laughs> yeah, so what is um, what the resistance is? Is it's people who are not supposed to be born, uh, who have like founded an underground resistance to try and fight for their right to live. The main protagonist in this book is his name's Brian, not the Brian, not to be mistaken with me, and he is someone who is illegally born and is being raised by his grandfather, and he's found a way to kind of hack into the main servers to steal identities so that he can kind of go around and the way that it works is he finds like he has a program that he's set up that actually like captures identities of people that die and just kind of puts them on hold so that the registration doesn't go through and then he assumes their identity and his grandfather ends up getting a stroke and he takes his grandfather to the hospital because he's basically lived in this little one bedroom apartment his entire life with his grandfather so that's all he knows. So he tries to take his grandfather to the hospital, and they're like, yeah, well, he's over the age where we can treat him, so he's just going to have to die. It's like, no, seriously, he's actually 59. But red flags go up because he's also his grandfather is also illegally born. They are about to arrest him when various people of the resistance kind of jump in and save him, and they're kind of pissed at him because they were in a mission to try and get medical supplies for themselves at the resistance, when he kind of screwed everything up by having security called on him because he's not a registered person. Right, and in theory, they could have just left him there, but they scooped him up anyway. Yeah, they scooped him up. Really, they didn't have to actually go and save his butt. So they he kind of joins the resistance, and it's kind of just a series of 
adventures that he kind of goes on with the resistance from then on out. Um, there really isn't that much to the story because it feels like that's as far as it goes. There's some really interesting concepts to it, but it's just more of like, okay, we have an adventure and here's another adventure and here's a couple characters so that we can do this adventure. But it seems kind of like a window into that world that he yeah. created. You know, I, I can imagine that the writer is expecting for this you know, tapestry that he's, he's has laid out to be the form for lots of different stories instead of just this one. Almost mm-hmm. like it's pitch material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And it, like, it really doesn't go anywhere. It has some cool concepts in it, but there's, like, they do a storyline about where the food source kind of comes from, which is really kind of messed up, but they don't really go anywhere with that. It's just they kind of, like, leave that story hanging. Yeah, it's like a catalyst for another thing happening. In which like they action. don't. Yeah, because this is basically a one-shot. It's done. Well, um, the, the most important, I mean, the most interesting... Of the stories that it told, where the story is the story that, that expanded upon uh, what was her name? Virgin Mary. Yeah, on Virgin Mary and kind of her past and where she came from and all that sort of stuff. And they were building it up to be this kind of really big thing. It ended up being really anticlimactic. Really just, anticlimactic. You know, essentially, there was like assassins coming from her and for her, and they're in the middle of this other mission trying to save these people on this moving train. And it's really dynamic and visually interesting. And on on the top of the train come these these Ninja kind these of Tibetan guys. ninja dudes, and boom, they jump down, and she like flips up and does all this darting around and dodging, you know, arrows and stuff. And basically, it just she whoops their butts, and then it's no, over. I mean, no essentially, it's just kind of like wham, finished. I mean, just in a couple pages. Well, one thing that I kind of like, although they didn't take it any further, Virgin Mary is kind of like their person that teaches everybody hand to hand combat. And then they have another guy who's kind of like the muscle who is like their gun person who's kind who's of a, a drunkard whack and job. ass. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a serious whack job. They're trying to make peace with the guy who's been hunting him down. And it looks like everything's going to work and these guys are going to join the resistance. And all of a sudden he's like, oh, f-, and he just kind of like shoots him and a bunch of the other people. And they're like, scram. It's like, what? You want to do something about it? Try it. You know, <laughs> um, which I thought was kind of funny. Just that like that just came like right out of left field. I was like, oh, that's awesome. But then it kind of just. That's where the whole series kind of ends right there. It's like, okay. Yeah, they, that, kind of like, they kind of ride off into the dystopian sunset. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah pretty much. That sunset? <laughs> um, right off into the mushroom cloud. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There we go. And you had talked about, like, you know, not liking art that's very busy. This has just words upon words upon words yeah, on in, the thing. Incredibly wordy. Incredibly, incredibly wordy. wordy. And, and one thing that I would say that really drove me nuts is that so many of the action scenes that were really epic yeah. didn't have any action lines, and so it looked like things were just sitting still. Kind of frozen midair. Like frozen in midair. You know, I mean, towards the end, they started to add in some more action lines, but right in the very beginning, there's explosions, they're jumping through the air, they're falling out of the sky, and the, like the first time that the gun guy that Brian yeah. was talking about... He comes jumping over the top of this mech and blows a bunch of android dudes away. And it basically looks like they had just taken like a high-speed picture of him, and it's just he's just floating in the air. There's no there's no movement that yeah. you can, can be perceived. And I really and I like believe they actually had a different artist on the last. Okay, picture. that would make so sense. I mean, it's still very sense, much yeah. the same characters and seems almost like the same art style. But the latter half or the latter chunk of the book, which is potentially the second artist, there was a lot more motion. That could be perceived, which I, I felt like was a huge failing in the beginning, because they're trying to have these 
epic set pieces and this big dystopian kind of cyberpunk future with yeah. robots and flying hovercrafts and, and mermaids. And mermaids, oh, yeah, mermaids for some yeah. reason. The, yeah, I, yeah. I had to look twice at that page because I'm sitting there watching an action sequence, I think, yeah. because it was, as you said, it was presented really in, in a lot of static frames. There could have been a lot more diagonals or just a lot more dynamism, maybe some negative space to yeah. show what's going on. And then I look and I went, oh, it's a chick. Is that a butt? Is that a mermaid? What the? Cool? <laughs> yeah. Just kind of just kind of scraped by it. It's like from the back, you can see them. And it's like, wait, is that a fish butt? What's happening? They're kind of like children that were illegally created or whatever. Which they call strays. Which, yeah, which are strays. Mm -hmm. And they get taken in by corporations and get genetically altered. And so they're really kind of something that is something that's really well sought after in high-end kind of seedy clubs uh, to kind of be on show. Yeah, it's basically, like I said, like middle-end gentlemen's clubs. Yeah. They basically have mermaids just floating around in tanks and... Which also weird. didn't really make much sense to me because if they're strays and they're genetically altered, well... You're taking up a lot of resources by just having these things. Yeah, it did that. So, yeah, just it's just a plot hole. Just, well, <laughs> yeah, just you know, sprinkle the food in the tank and, yeah. and so on. It depends what kind of money you're making on it. They can yeah. write it out. That's true. Well, they made it pretty clear that, that you know, the, the powers that be were totally controlling and screwing everybody. You know, and then air quotes, you know, for the good of all. Yes. You know, it really just reminded me of, of, of the water and power from, uh, from Tank Girl. Where it's just kind of like, oh, you guys need us, and there's nothing, and rah, rah, rah. you know, it's just this controlling guys that you know control everything based on resources instead of power. I mean, instead of like military or force or something like that. And then they had like this one weird section where they're kind of where you're talking about for the good of all. There's like another subset that's going to try and like take over and have like a religious thing, and they have like these guys who are like. The Swords of Gideon, yeah, which are like basically the, like Templars or something. Yeah, which were supposed to be like these super badass guys that were going to be like their warriors. And a few scenes later, they just get blown up. <laughs> they just get blown right <laughs> yeah, the they, hell up they, for they, no they, reason. They set the, up the design like, concepts on them, were, on them were awesome. Awesome, yeah, just, they like, look really, really cool. cool. Like Christian style based everything. It like cross everywhere. One of the guys had like this glowing halo, neon halo behind his uh -huh. head. It's really, really cool. And they're building up to this, clearly building up to this. Like these guys are going to be badasses. They're going to be the next thing that you know that the resistance has to fight against. And then. Essentially, some old man with with like a like an explosive you know vest just goes kabang and just kills them. It's like oh, there that goes. Well, you know, and sometimes it's kind of fun to do with stories where you kind of throw just kind of like a total curveball where it's like yeah, we're gonna do this and psych. But you know, with this not really being able to build up to anything, it's kind of I don't know. It just didn't yeah. feel right. It was full of anticlimaxes. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's interesting because some, t you know, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Pinku would have a better perspective on this, but but for me, I kind of expect a one shot to be kind of a contained story. Right. I mean, maybe maybe not necessarily explain everything to do with the universe which it takes place in, but it's kind of a complete thought because a lot of the times one shots or or you know yeah basically one shots are almost like somebody testing the waters to see if people really want more of this. And then maybe they'll expand upon it with more stories or different stories or something else happening in that universe. Mm -hmm. And But it's still kind of like a complete thought, like a, like a, like a photograph of like, this is what I kind of want to say. And this, this didn't really seem like it had anything to say aside from here's the world and we're running around in it and causing trouble and these are the different factions and we're going to continue to fight and walk off into the, you know, the dystopian mushroom cloud sunset. No, um, I know what you mean. I think when I was reading through it, I was sort of looking for, you know, a finished thought or a finished idea 
uh, just a place where you could pause and you can think about it. But what happened is the first couple of uh, chapters I read, there it just kind of kept going, and I I needed that break. I needed some time to process it. But then they kept introducing more characters, and you know um, the artwork. It's I gotta say it's really beautiful. Um, Very. Mm-hmm. obviously a lot of skill really great design in terms of the color composition they were conscious about which colors they chose of the world because there's all these artificial purples and blues and these sort of things if you see a shade of green it's not like you'd see out in nature it's the sickly um you know neon lurid green really good idea i was listening to an uh, interview with aaron sorkin last night actually and he was talking about when he writes characters and he writes anything about people he wants to make explicit what what they want. He wants to tell us what they want, and, and then he wants to show us what links they'll go to to get what they want. And while you get some of that, it's almost so wordy that it gets in the way. You're busy processing that you, it's not too clear on an emotional level, and I think it needs that more. So more character development was something you were desiring, that Definitely. kind of downtime. Or, or focus, you know? Yeah, A little it, bit really, it really didn't feel focused at all, like... It felt like when the creators started, they started with an initial concept, maybe a couple characters here and there, and started writing it and kind of were like, uh, we don't really know what we want to do with this mm-hmm. outside of the initial concept and a couple characters here and there. Well, right. it, it Over and over, it reminded me of Final Fantasy VII and that kind of dystopian, yeah. the big bad guy. I mean, like that first like kind of Midgar section of the story where there's a resistance and there's these bad guys running everything. It's and- a trope. Exactly. Yeah. But the thing the thing that I feel really made Final Fantasy, that section of Final Fantasy, probably my favorite piece of that entire game, and it's one of my favorite games ever, is like you said, that kind of breather that you get after that initial, oh no, we're blowing stuff up and this is crazy and we're running away from things and fighting cops and no, 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 no. But then they like kind of get to the safe house and there's this downtime that game-wise takes at least an hour, you know, and you're you're going around, you're talking to people, you're getting more clear about the relationships, and you learn about some history that your main character has with another character, and, and you could kind of, there's sort of this downtime and an opportunity to expand upon the characters and their motivations and who they are and where they're coming from instead of just action, 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 next thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. And then when you go out, it's kind of like you give a shit about the people that you're with. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it, actually. I started reading X-Men in about, I don't know, mid to late 80s. And so I jumped in at about uh, Chris Claremont era. Claremont, so one of the best X-Men writers there was. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. And one of my favorite parts about that was uh, the first issue where Jubilee is sort of wandering around in in their home. It's in Australia. They're stuck in the outback, you know, and one of the most, you know, people consider that storyline really terrible sometimes. There was nothing but characterization. She's crawling through their attic. She finds all these costumes of these people. So she's learning who these people are by going through their stuff. Meanwhile, they're outside playing a baseball game with their crazy, wacky hijink superpowers. And hilarity ensues. And, you know, in subsequent issues when, you know, they go, let's see, they go to Genosha. And yeah, the whole um, mutant massacre was that era, the... Extinction agenda. Mm-hmm. There are lots of big storylines that they put out a lot of character detail. You know, there was a couple of big action issues, but it was just massive amounts of character development and growth. And yeah, and you know. I feel that you know this comic here. There was a moment actually uh, when the police officers. He's you know he's working for the man. He's talking. You know, he's just talking about having a child with his wife or. Maybe just his SO, I don't know. Yeah, it's his wife. Oh, or, well, there's a time where he's talking with his partner about it, but 
he's also talking about with his wife about wanting to have a kid. Right. And that sort of endeared me to that character. Mm -hmm. So what happens to him later on, I don't know if I should spoil it or not. It it was sort of like, well, there goes that. Yeah. All right. The the main character, he doesn't talk about himself at all. Yeah. He's kind of annoying. You almost care more about that. More about that character who spends some time talking about his wife. It's like you get a ways into the book and you're kind of thinking to yourself, well, who the hell is the main character? Who am I supposed to identify with and kind of be my point of entry and reference for this world? No, it wasn't clear. And um, like we mentioned before, or maybe like I mentioned for about a second, the fact that, you know, maybe this was pitch material. So if you keep that in mind, this is somebody's baby. They've probably been developing a lot of this world, building it all out. But I think they sort of just threw it all at us. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, maybe because that's their only chance to. Right. I'd like to think maybe not. Um, If they redid this again in the future with, with a little bit of that in mind or just, you know, a little time, Little, a little different pacing. I, I think it'd be really strong. Yeah, and you look at the amount of effort that went into the art, like the big double page. Oh, uh, gorgeous! It's pro. Yeah, it's it's, totally, totally pro level. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so detailed that I had to stop and look at it and do the zoom thing on your pet and right. go through every section of it because it it was seriously. Well done. And I have to step back and be amazed at the world that he created. Mm-hmm. Who was the writer in this situation? Um, it's two writers. It's Well, they're both given the title of the creator. So it's Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmieri. Okay, so one of those was not the illustrator then? No. Okay. Well, the world they created was so rich with so much information. But like Pinku said, it feels sort of like they were afraid that they wouldn't get another chance to share this world that they worked so hard on with us again. They're like, man, we're just going to cram all the information we possibly can out of this cool idea we had. Just shove it down your throat. You know, give you backstory and give you history and side plots. Just kind of just like throw it at you so that you can at least get a glimpse of it because it seems like they'll never have a chance. Which actually brings up a great point because I was listening to a podcast a little while back called Better in the Dark. Great movie podcast, by the way. And they were talking about Zack Snyder and the movie Sucker Punch, which, you know, was pretty much panned. (laughs) And the way that they described it is like, here was his chance because he didn't know whether he, you know, with Hollywood, it's so fickle. One day you're in, one day you're out. So he took his chance when he had it, when he was still high, to, uh, as far as his career arc was going, to make a movie that he wanted to make. But at the time, he didn't really have all the skills he needed as a director to successfully pull it off. Right. And maybe that's the case with these guys. It's like, you know, here's our shot. We better do it whether we have the talent to pull everything together or not. Well, I know personally there's some stories that I've written out and got timelines of, even a couple issues pulled up, and it's just kind of like, I'm in no way ready to actually make this real. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, there's some stories that I've got that it's like, okay, I can do this. This yeah. is this is, this is is within my – this is maybe stretch me a little bit or maybe well within my skill set, you know, but – there's definitely some ideas that I have that are that are so grand that it's like this is going to have to happen a couple of years from now when I've got more experience with writing when I got more experience with illustrating and it's not like this big project that I'd like to do that I just am not ready for. Mm. No, I think yeah. I understand that too. Um, you know, I've got uh, I make comics sometimes. I do a lot of things sometimes, um, but I think if there's <laughs> <laughs> I think if there's anything to take from this, it's really the fact that. It's okay to stop. It's okay to not give us the whole picture. In fact, I think it would be an asset to make people maybe want more. Right. Mm-hmm. 
This there seemed to be yeah, there seemed to be this sort of hungry fear that you're not gonna get it all and you just yeah, like I said before. I think that maybe if there was a little bit more patience and I dare say grace about just being like, you know, comp maybe confidence wasn't really clear. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, definitely. Like confidence. it didn't feel it didn't feel like I mean if there were there's there's a certain amount of What's a good example? Oh, okay. Most recently, that came uh, that movie Prometheus came out, and I was watching this uh, this show called Spoilers, where Kevin James like gets a bunch of people to watch the show. I mean, watch the movie, and then they come back and talk about it. Kevin James. Kevin James from, from King of Queens. King of Queens. No, not Kevin James. Kevin Shit. Smith. Kevin Smith. Not <laughs> her. Because. Kevin James sitting there blinking from zookeeper. Yeah. <laughs> does that really make no, him an authority? No, 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 no. So Kevin Smith okay, gets a good. bunch of people together, watches a, a movie, and then has them come back and talk about it, and then often gets somebody who is an actually involved in the creative process of, of the movie to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And the writer who for Prometheus was there and was talking to them, and a complaint a lot of people had about the movie, I guess I'll, I'll start with, is that it didn't feel like it connected enough with the previous stuff. It felt like it kind of opened up a whole other Pandora's box mm -hmm. of storyline and didn't really make a complete thought and answer the questions that were burning from the first aliens about what's going on and, you know, who are these architect or architects, what do they call them? Who are engineers. the engineers? Engineers. And, and what he said is, it's like, we, we weren't interested in completing the story and finishing it. We wanted to, we felt like the universe was strong enough, you know, that we wanted to kind of show you a different part and let there be maybe at least two divergent paths and stories, you know, where maybe from here, a logical next step could have been alien and then mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Or, you know, there's another sort of story about what happens at the end of this, of this movie that could take you in a different direction. And, and, you know, by the way, just to plug us, if you want to go to reviews.pandamanga.com, we have a review up of Prometheus. Uh, I believe I gave it a three out of five. Yeah, so you know, you give it a matinee. Well, but that's a three out of five. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so technically, the, it's three out of six, isn't it? The, the sixth one is secret. The point Fair is enough. blowing it. Well, you already told what that is. Okay, all right. Anyway, yeah. moving on. Man. Back at the point, I wanted to just say that I, I think that it, there's a certain amount of uh, that you show a certain amount of confidence and grace in your storytelling. If you're like, no, I'm just going to show you this much. This is this is this is complete. Yeah. Without that, you know, maybe there's all this back stuff going on. Like you, you start, like I've said many times before, Star Wars. There's technical manuals coming out the ass of all this extra information that you're never going to get exposed to oh, in yeah. just the movies. I think when I was a kid, I had a book just on the droids of Star Wars. Exactly. Yeah. There's all. I mean, so it, it's it's great when when it, when a writer really takes the time to to make a really deep backstory and a really deep world. Mm -hmm. But I, I think we've said before that it's it's powerful to be able to just show a piece of that and with confidence, not not feel like you got to show them everything. You yeah. know. You know, I actually think. Um... The Resistance did a lot of what I see in a lot of Ridley Scott's movies. Mm. Is that he builds this immense world. You know, Blade Runner, Alien, and Prometheus now. Tries to tell this really grand epic story. And then runs out of time. And doesn't quite know how to finish it. So he finishes it anyway. Like with Blade Runner. One of my all-time favorite movies. But... If you really pay attention, they leave out so much of the potential story there. Definitely. Like, it was visually breathtaking. You know, it's one of 
the greatest visual spectacles I've seen on film. But they leave out, um, you know, all the stuff about why the replicants came back to Earth, uh, Decker's past as a Blade Runner, and, you know, Prometheus did that too. You know, the whole second half of the story had nothing to do with the first half. <laughs> Don't get me started. Let's really yeah. not get me started. Yeah. Right and actually, and then I, the yeah. resistance, yeah, it, they, you know, they show you the food supplies, uh, the scary thing, and all these other, like, half stories that kind of pitch to you and don't go anywhere with it. And actually, in a way, Resistance kind of reminds me of the movie Daybreakers, which is a, a movie with Ethan Hawke about vampires and how they... Like they've now become the majority and humans have come become the minority where it's got this great concept. It's really ambitious. It really doesn't actually um, kind of go anywhere though. But at least with that movie, you know, the, the ending of it, it has like, you know, it's not like a really conclusive ending. It kind of, they ride off into the sunset, but you know, now what they're fighting for, you've got like, they have a cure for vampirism. Right. And like so, the world has changed. And the world has definitely changed. And I think in this one, if you had like kind of left off after episode or issue seven, instead of going on to this complete side story of Virgin Mary on issue eight, I think it would have been a lot better because it's like, okay, now we've got a cop involved. We have a lot more secrets that we know about them. You know, we now have a way to change the world um, with information. Whereas if they, and if they had left it off, I think it would be a lot better. Where instead they kind of just go into this completely different side story, which who knows how far into the future of the story it goes with where that starts at. Definitely. Well, yeah. let's let's go ahead and get your rating here. I'm gonna give it two out of five. I it was very very wordy. I actually struggled to kind of get through it. And issue eight, I felt like the entire time, like really, really, this is the final issue. You're gonna give us a completely different story in the final issue and just kind of end it like that really you know if i had stopped at issue seven it probably would have gotten half an issue more but I, yeah i didn't really like it they're way too anticlimactic yeah i'd give it a 2.5 two yeah. and a half issues i think you know i i love the i love the environment that it paints i'm a sucker for the dystopian cyberpunk sort of thing i think that's a great mm-hmm. you know opportunity to tell a story but i have very much all the same problems you have with it very anticlimactic kind of all over the place not a real complete thought um or a real complete story arc really and yeah, it just didn't seem like it would go anywhere. I would love to see more. It feels like, honestly, the, the problem we have is that there isn't enough of it. That mm-hmm. there isn't enough to really take advantage of the world and, and finish the stories that, that it was trying to say. So mm-hmm. well, when we get back, I will go ahead and tell you what I have been reading. You're listening to Geek Life. Don't go anywhere. <laughs>
welcome back to Geek Life, the one, the only Panda Manga podcast. Next up, we're going to hear JP talk a little bit about iVampire. Yeah, now, actually, for those of you that have been listening to the Geek Life podcast from the beginning, this will actually be the first non-indie, well, at least at least non-like, I mean, because I guess I'll, I'll, I'll add, you know, Image and Dark Horse in the indie realm. I'm not talking, like, just, you know, self-published, but... This is the first kind of mainstream DC Marvel sort of comic book that we've actually talked about, that I've actually talked about personally. And uh, I guess I'll start with saying that I'm a big sucker for vampires. Not the sparkly kind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was even, that was even on purpose. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Shit. Uh, anyway, uh, I have always been interested in the vampire mythos and the story i think that it's a very powerful opportunity to tell a story of someone who has lived so long and has seen so much and there's a lot of opportunity for character development you can have the very same character to you know have you know have legitimately have a story that takes place in the 1800s and all the way up to now and and it just allows for a lot of flexibility and so i think kind of storytelling wise it's a cool opportunity to do some neat stuff Unfortunately, I think recently it's become this sort of, you know, teen drama garbage mm. with bunches of different things kind of capitalizing on the vampire thing. But I think really deep down, you know, the, the, the vampirism myth as it really provides an opportunity for some interesting things to be investigated. Like, you know, probably one of my most favorite things is, you know, when a vampire is really old and just kind of done, you know, just, just tired of living. And it's something that all of us who just don't live very long have a hard time wrapping our minds around, especially, you know, in our 20s, 30s, you know, young people. It's kind of like, you want to, you're, you're ready to die? You've, you've seen everything you can possibly see. You're strong, you're fast, you can live forever, you can pretty much do whatever you want and have whatever you want, and you're done. You don't want to do this anymore. You know what I mean? So it's interesting, I think, to have the opportunity to, to tell the story of a character who's really just finished. And... That doesn't really necessarily have anything to do with I Vampire, really, at least as far as I've seen. But I just I just think that the vampire mythos is an opportunity to tell really powerful stories. And this is is no no, uh, no different. The I Vampire is actually really, really excellent. I've been enjoying it a great deal. I've only actually been able to read the first six issues. This is a substantial chunk of the story so far. It's not quite all the way up to date. I think there's a few issues I'm behind. Yeah, I think they're up to ten. Yeah, and and there's a couple of them. Joe actually is going to have to give me because they crossed over with what was one of the vampire. Uh, I mean, with the Batman comics, uh, Justice League Dark. Right? Was that just just Justice League Dark or? Uh, so far, so far. Uh-huh. Okay. So let me let me read you a little bit about what what Wikipedia has to say about the early Eye Vampire stuff. So this this I Vampire is officially part of the New Fifty Two, and I had personally, and, and even Joe hadn't really ever heard of the original I Vampire. We no. kind of were looking at each other like, is this is this actually like a remake of something, or is this brand mm. new, or what? Because the New Fifty Two has put in a lot of new characters. Right, exactly. So so we 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 went onto the Wikipedia to find all of the answers to the universe, and uh, Wikipedia has this to say: I Vampire was a 24-issue series created by writer J.M. DeMatis. Am I saying that right? Does somebody recognize Joe? Damn, that sounds familiar, but I couldn't place it. Hmm. So by J.M. DeMatis, that appeared in House of Mystery between 1981 and 1983. It originally started as a backup story among House of Mystery's three-story format, but soon became so popular that it eventually overtook the title of the cover. Even I Vampire's finale was almost book length. 
So hmm. even back then, it looked like it kind of started as a side thing and then ended up becoming really popular. Yeah, we might uh, have to dig it up. Yeah, I really think it would be cool to check it out. The in this in this new one, it's part of the new fifty two, and the initial team was Joshua Hale Filikov and Andrea Sorrentino. Actually, the first issue was pretty pretty critically acclaimed. It was seventy eighth best selling comic in September, which is pretty good because there's a shit ton of comics that come out in one month. <laughs> anyway, so in this in this version, there's a young looking vampire named Andrew, and it's basically all about his relationship with his kind of ex girlfriend or ex lover. Uh, Mary, or she likes to be called Mary, Queen of Blood. And there's clearly kind of a tangled, complicated love story history between the two of them. And essentially, she wants to kind of start the vampire apocalypse. Change a bunch of people, take over the world, you know, blood, fire, brimstone, let's just destroy, let's just watch the world burn, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's kind of like, whoa, whoa, let's not do that. Let's, Let's chill back. Why don't we just be together, you know? I still love you. And so there's kind of this, this heart wrenching, like he still really cares for her, but he has to stop her and she's causing all kinds of trouble. And he's having to put down vampires and kill people who've just been turned and have no clue what's going on. And it's really neat. Cause he's sort of like this anti-hero sort of guy where he really is like this ancient, powerful vampire. And, uh, but still is, and still very much a vampire, but has trying to just stop his crazy ex-girlfriend from like freaking destroying the world. And uh, she's doing a pretty good job of destroying stuff. She takes down a couple cities and really causes lots of trouble. Where I left off, they had just gotten into Gotham and hooked up with Batman. I gotta say, it was a little bit jarring to have a story about vampires, and then all of a sudden, Batman. (laughs) (laughs) It just felt funny, but I guess if there was a DC character that really fit well in it, it it is Batman. He's so gothic and dark and, you know, rare. You know, vampire... Batman, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, but, why but not? It, it it fit really well. He he fit it fit in with them pretty well. This kind of stern, you know, kind of harsh manner. But he's such a one dimensional character when he's out there fighting. He's like, mm-hmm. I'm a good guy. I'm going to do stuff. I'm going to kill. I'm not kill. I'm not going to kill anybody. I'm going to fight. You know, it's like so. It's like a, like a freight train. Whereas these other characters are as vampires tend to be, kind of all over the place and emotional and, you know, oh, I'm thinking about this and this and that. No, I still love her, but I have to stop her and and all Mm -hmm. this stuff. And Batman's like, are you a problem? I'll kill you. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you're not technically human, (laughs) you know. So anyway, but it was it was really cool. I would say that the thing that stood out to me probably the most was the art style. I really, really Mm -hmm. like the art style. The art style's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. The heavy, heavy, heavy use of darks and blacks and browns, especially. And browns, but 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 if you were to, I mean, it's like lots of high contrast. Mm-hmm. Half the time, there's no actual real detail in the eyes. It's just like the yeah. shadow of the brow over the cheeks, and there's still a lot that's able to be communicated. It's very dramatic looking and powerful and kind of backlit almost. And it's sort of the sort of star style you'd sort of expect from something like a. Um, what am I trying to say here? The marsh. Yeah, uh, the sort of art style you would expect from like a noir comic book about a detective looking for the Maltese Falcon or something, you know? Yeah. It, it takes a lot of skill to pull, some, pull something like that off, too, because if you're not showing facial details and you're trying to convey emotion or gesture or anything like that, you have to be damn good with drawing a body and telling a story with it with no face. Right, because all those little subtle details of how you hold yourself and, 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 and how your body kind of reacts to your emotions outside of the face, because as an artist, you really heavily rely upon what the face is doing, the eyebrows, the eyes, the mouth, 
you know, the jaw, I mean, like everything is so important in conveying emotion. And in a story that is got a lot of emotion in it and a lot of sort of dynamic things happening for them to be able to convey that with just black blobs and the right shapes and things like that with, mm. you know, it's pretty wild to have so much of it just black and overcast. Yeah, I have to give a lot of uh, credit to the colorist, Marcelo Maiolo, I think it is, which is who does all this sort of amazing work with the color tones and how everything's kind of dark and faded and yet, you know, very stark in some ways. And It almost just, has this kind of monochromatic flavor. Yeah, it. it really does. It's very cool. It's, it's very it's cool. Something, it's so, the, the color scheme is a little bit more earthy looking than the stuff that you see from Ben Templesmith and, you know, mm -hmm. 30 Days of Night. But it, it still has that flavor of, you know, it's all sort of this monochrome look. And then as is often an ample opportunity for blood and gore in yeah. a vampire story, it's like the, the blood sticks out. It shows. Yeah. It's, it's like a focal point all of a sudden. But yeah. in this one, it's, it's not so dramatic, not like the bright crimson. Right. It's a really subtle sort of... Dark. Right, but it's really like one of the two colors on the page, essentially, yeah. you know, within within tones. It, it draws your eye, but doesn't, like, jump off the page. It's exactly. beating yeah. you in the face with it, I think. Uh -huh. um, it's really impressive, actually, how there's a lot of really strong design sensibilities with all three of these people putting, you know, their artwork and even, you know, the arrangement and the selection of the text style, uh, the typeface styles, um, really sets a great mood for for the story, for the book. I think that just it, the design is just fantastic, and the story so far is really cool. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm genuinely interested in what happens with the characters and and what happens with Andrew and and you know how things move forward. And you could tell that he's he's you know he's an old vampire and he's come to a place where he's not controlled by his lusts and his and his animalistic needs and base needs. You know, he's you know can make conscious decisions about how he wants to live his life. And his decisions are contrary to his to Mary Queen of Blood, and so then they become kind of on opposite ends of things. But there's still a very much a connection between them, so mm. it's very interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes, and I actually would really like to see some of the earlier, I mean, the earlier run of it. Mm. And uh, yeah, I I wonder if if it's really only going to be a couple years, and then that's it, like it was before, or if it's really going to be a perpetuating sort of long term comic. It's not one of the ones that they're they're ending right away. Uh, a couple of the new fifty twos, I think, are ending at issue nine, and then they're throwing in a couple of new titles. Interesting. But uh, as far as I know, this one is still going. Uh, one thing that I did want to actually address and kind of just pose the question to the group is because sort of my my. Most of my comic book experience through high school was reading Japanese comic books and manga, as it is said. And the problem is, is that I became used to having the story be all in one place and not be bouncing around in, in different releases from different comic books and different issues and stuff like that. And it's something that is so common. In American oh, comic books. And son, I can huh. tell you. <laughs> Let me tell you about my experiences with this. Exactly. And so so for me, I'm thinking like, oh, I'm going to go buy issue seven. And issue seven's like, not at all. What actually, you know, like it's there's missing stuff. And Joe's like, oh, yeah, it's in the Dark Avengers. It's like, what do you mean it's in the Dark Avengers? It's in the Eye of Empire. That's the story. It's that comic book. Why is the story somewhere else? It's like such a, 
that dirty marketing plan to try and get that's what it feels like it feels like it just totally this is. dirty rotten marketing plan to get you to buy a bunch How of different freaking series dare you that, that after is. all this you started over and you still did this to us it's just twisted now yeah. i mean i mean is that but is this just kind of just the mo it's just the way it goes uh for mainstream comics oh yeah yeah the amount yeah. of crossovers like yeah, sometimes like annual crossover events nowadays uh, oh yeah marvel's awful with it like i still think marvel has the greatest characters ever but their writers right now are infuriating because it's the same crossover event like every time right now they're doing the avengers versus x-men before that it was uh the siege before that it was the Dark Avengers. Before that, it was the Skrull Invasion. Before that, it was the Civil War. Before that, it was the House of M. They have been doing this, like, huge event, small time to get used to it, huge event, small time to get used to it pattern for almost 10 years now. And it's driving me freaking nuts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's actually one of the things that turned me off from American comics. I, you know, I grew up on X-Men, and I made it... I was their, um, I was their devout follower up until about age fourteen when I went. You know what? I don't want to buy Ghost Rider. Screw you guys. So that's actually <laughs> what turned you know. And then for twelve years after that, I read nothing but stuff from Japan. And now you know, as an adult now, I'm realizing I don't have to throw my money at things I don't need to. Um, I know the exact issue you're talking about. Exactly. The X Men Ghost Rider crossover. Oh yeah. About X Men number twenty. 21. So. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I come back um, with more discerning tastes. I'm more demanding, I think. And mm -hmm. I'm also, you know, actually, I think it's a good thing. I'm more open to reading other comics that aren't Marvel DC comics. Mm -hmm. um, it was a good thing to break up with them. Yeah, definitely. I, I've, I've come back, you know, doing, you know, like I collected the Fleer Ultra comic book cards and would read comic books. And I got a, the entire 1993 Marvel Masterpiece comic book set with the foils and everything. I mean, yes. I mean comic cards. Like it's, you know, that's that was my, you know, I grew up on that stuff. Yeah. And then kind of stopped for a while. And much like Pinku kind of really got heavily into the Japanese comics. And then came back. And now that I'm trying to get into the comic book scene myself as, a, as an illustrator and a writer, I find myself really drawn to independent comics. My heart goes out to these people who are doing self-press and self-publishing, and they're just like, this is my story, and I'm not willing to get it compromised by publishers and by editors and let them come in and change it and, and tweak it and rearrange it and make it something that's not what I really want to communicate. And they feel they, they, they boldly go out there and spend their own time and their own money to you know, get a table somewhere and hawk their wares and, and, and share their stuff on the internet and create a community and blog and stuff. And I just, I just, my heart goes out to them and it's just such a, it's such a cool kind of defiant artistic expression that I just love it. And I'm, I'm excited to beginning to be able to be really be a part of it. And, but, but I have to say when, you know, Joe and I go, you know, not so much weekly comic book trip, but you, you know, our, our, we hope to have it be weekly. You know, I am just magnet right over to the independent stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I wish that that we had more self-published stuff at the comic book store that we go to. Yeah. But I always I'm just like, you know, like, you know, oh, there's this new thing on DC or this new thing on, you know, on Marvel. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. OK, what does Dark Horse have? <laughs> you know, well, I, I see you like thumbing at the the major titles and like tentatively like who who maybe 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 I'm like, 
dude, it's like 10 issues in. You're going to have to go back. <laughs> and at this point, I really feel like we should at least, you know, give our shameless plug, as always, to Waterfront Comics and Sassoon with, you know, John over there because... It wouldn't feel right if we had a comics podcast and didn't shamelessly plug Waterfront Comics. Yeah, Waterfront so. Comics, it's a scene in California. Go check it out. It's mm-hmm. totally a cool little spot. John's amazing. He'll help you find what you're looking for. Walls and walls of trade paperbacks to catch up on the decades and decades of comics you've missed. <laughs> yeah, then that's partially my thing. Is This is kind of like, you know, oh, what are you reading, Joe? Well, I'm reading this. What issue is it? Number 300? It's like... Oh, yeah, I kind of want to start from the beginning. And he's like, that's not how it works. No, not at all. You just jump in. You just just kind of jump in. You know, but that's what's nice about the trades is that you can go in. And a lot of especially the trades that are, you know, independent and even independent in like the form of Image and, you know, Dark Horse and, you know, you know, IEW and stuff like that. It's just, it's like, it's, it's a concise bang. It's, this is it. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. there's several trades, but it's a story from the beginning to the end, you know, instead of this ongoing, epic, complicated crossover mess that the superhero comics have become. Closure is good. Closure Closure is is great. Yes. Yes. And you get totally, totally spoiled reading Japanese comics because even the ones that go on for freaking ever, like Ranma or something, it begins and it ends. Yes. It's huge, but it begins and it ends. It's true. And also it makes you want more because you don't, you maybe don't have some things answered or, you know, your fan community gives it another life or you throw your money at them through merchandising. I think they make more money that way. Probably. I think Takashi Sensei is actually really rich because of her merchandising deals. She's she, oh, she is so it's like an idol of mine. Rumiko Takahashi is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. She's she's most famous probably for um, Ron Mo and Half. Maybe well, Inuyasha. Not, Inuyasha well. not anymore. I think it is Inuyasha. And, yeah, Inuyasha has really kind of toppled the. But I will. Oh, my, my one of my most my one of my first loves in Japanese cartoons was Ron Mo and Half. Just just amazing. And great. And anybody that hasn't read that needs to go right out and get some because it's totally awesome. Her ability to have smooth, clean frame pacing and dynamic action scenes with really like very cartoony characters that aren't super complicated um, but still be just amazing is awesome. And, and you try and draw her stuff, it's not real easy to try and communicate as much as she does with as little actual lines on the paper. I mean, her, the amount of ink that she uses on the paper in comparison to some other things like um, I'm trying to think of something that's really complicated. Uh, like the guy that does Video Girl Eye, what's his name? Oh, uh, I can't remember. Katsu- oh, what about Katsura? Is it or um, Katsura, Katsura, what about Katsura, what? Ichiro Oda, One Piece? Like you just mentioned, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes, busy, busy stuff, but it just doesn't doesn't flow. And Takahashi is just a machine. Anyway, I could, back to Ivan. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. Not yeah. back at the that. point again. <laughs> another tangent. Back another tangent. Yeah. Right. Okay. Ooh, it's getting late. All right, so... <laughs> anyway, so uh, I will give iVampire a solid four issues. I really like it. I am desperately looking forward to reading more. And even though my massive frustration with having to go into the Dark Avengers to actually get more of the Dark story, Justice League. Dark Justice League, was mm-hmm. it? To, to get more... Yeah, Avengers, duh. Dark Justice League, to get, to get more of the story, it's just like, I need to know what happens. I need to know what happens. I want to know what happens. Yeah. I'm craving more. Yeah, there's huge siege of Gotham City by endless throngs of vampires. It's completely awesome. Mm. So, Yeah, I, unfortunately, I'm not as high as JP on this one. I'm giving it a two and a half issues, a wow, solid minute. that's cold. Um, it is cold, you know, it's... It's very pretty to look at, and I think I'm just kind of really, really tired with the 
overpowered vampire. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like sunlight. It doesn't kill them. It just weakens them a little bit. Um, or makes them sparkle. Or makes them sparkle. And then, like, they talk about Andrew being an elder vampire, which is over 300 years. And in one of the comics, one of his sidekicks talks about the fact that the only way an elder vampire can die is if he actually wishes to die himself. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? Really? So unless they want to commit suicide, you can't kill him? So how exactly is he going to stop Bloody Mary? Oh, he has to kill himself? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, Or Mary, Queen of Blood? And then I am a sucker for, like, lovers on two opposite sides of a war. But in this case, it feels like, you know, at one point they were, and there really isn't, like, they've changed so much that they really shouldn't be in love with each other anymore. And, like... When she refers to him as lover, I mean, it almost feels like it should be one of these spiteful things, like to try and dig yeah, at but him. That's whereas, how real deep love is. This is always a connection, no matter. Right, how but but this one, it's like they're still really in love with each other. I'm like, no, just no. Um, and I don't know. It's just maybe, like I said, I'm just a little too tired of the vampire thing and the overpowered vampire thing, cool. and it feels like it's setting it up for. If not this year, then next or a couple, at least where we've I've gotten in the comics for a big crossover event with a bunch of different comics. Oh, God. Um, so D- DC's yeah. already done a handful of the small crossovers. Yeah, I mean, they've already Night, had, Night con- like, it's I'm in, I'm in five issues, reading. and they've already thrown in Constantine and Batman in the first five issues. Mm-hmm. It's like... Oh, Const- uh, having Constantine in there was great, though. Constantine's yeah. awesome. Just a little cameo, which was cool, but yeah, still. That was very cool. Anyway, so, yeah. That's that's what I thought. I gave it a four, four issues. Did you, you read it all, Rachel? No, I haven't gotten any yet. Oh, that's right. Well, yeah. you'll have to go home You're with You're sending it. me home with them tonight. That's correct. <laughs> Homework for Joe. Yeah, and the Brian is, is, is cruel and, and vicious and doesn't deserve to review it. So, <laughs> anyway, when we hey, get back... I'm entitled to my own opinions, even if they're wrong. You are entitled to your own opinions, your own incorrect opinions. Anyway, when we get back, we'll get into Pinku's review of Festering Romance. Listening to Geek Life, don't go anywhere.
Welcome back to Geek Life. Now let's turn to Pinku for her review of Festering Romance. Alright, so um, Festering Romance is a book by a girl named uh, Renee Lott. I don't know if I can give an unbiased review, but I, I damn well am going to try just because we're All reviews are jaded and biased, whether they try and pretend that they're not. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. well, R- Renee Lott's sister is one of my closest homeboys, so uh, I got the book already signed. I got it for free. I was going to buy it anyway in case you're ever listening, Athena, Renee Lott's older sister. <sighs> Uh, it's it's a book that centers on the protagonist, a girl named Janet, who's living with a ghost. Friend hooks her up on a blind date, and we get to see how it complicates her life because she's living with a ghost. The universe isn't necessarily as rich as a lot of other books we've been talking about, especially tonight. It's also dialogue-driven a lot of the times. The pacing is pretty straightforward. When I say that, it's I'm talking about how long it takes between panel to panel when you're going through a book where most of the panels in this book are relatively uh, uniform in size. So it's uh, an advantage, and it's also a disadvantage, depending on who you are. On one hand, you lose a little bit of dynamism, but on another hand, you have the advantage of, of breaking out of that pattern and sort of underscoring the significance of moments where you take up half a page mm-hmm. or where there are no panels at all drawn on the page. In terms of artwork... I think it's a pretty solid book. I know for a fact that Renee has very consciously developed her style. Um, I've seen it over maybe a decade developed and then through college too. It's influenced by anime and manga, definitely, but it has a lot of other influences, I want to say, from turn of the century or early 19th century cartoons. The faces and emotions are really iconic. And because of that... They're also easy to understand. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Characters are turned into symbols of characters because of that. Um, there are so there aren't very uh, very many discerning facial features between them, but you still get a sense of individuality and personality with them. And I think a lot of that is rooted in the dialogue. I know that Renee worked on it for about two years. She was approached right out of art college and she actually went to um SCAD, which is an art school in Georgia, has a degree in sequential art. She's very well studied. You know, maybe you wouldn't be able to tell that by looking at the book, but it it is a very conscious drawing style. You said that recently she transitioned into working mostly on web comics instead. Right. It was this experience. um, To my understanding, it was this experience that led her to believe that publishing isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all of the comics medium. And we're learning that too, I mean, in terms of Everybody who makes comics, it's so much easier to get it up on the web. It's so much easier to integrate in your life. And, you know, most importantly, you don't have anybody. You don't have to have anybody's approval to just put a comic up. You don't need money behind it. Well, very minimal money in terms of startup costs, web hosting, a computer. Heck, that's what we're all about. Panda Manga for all your indie comic needs starting July 4th when I can finally shave again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's actually one of the reasons why we started Panda Manga is that there's such, it is so easy to get your stuff up online now. There's a lot of kind of sifting through to get to the good stuff. For a hundred, you might find one gem. Exactly. Possibly more. Exactly. And so that's partially what we were trying to accomplish at Panda Manga is that we will you know, we'll do the hard work of searching around and trying to find kind of promising new young artists and, and comics and have it be sort of an exclusive community where you can come and, and, and know that you'll find something interesting that you may not be able to find and can be found sort of in some, you know, cobweb-ridden area of the internet that just deserves to be seen. We'll try and get it to you. 
you know, or some new people that we ran into or something that we found at a convention or something like that. That's like, this is really cool. You need to see this, you know, but that way you don't, you can come to Panda Manga and not have to look through all the other stuff to find a couple good things. We'll bring the good stuff to you right away. That's the goal anyway. Right. Um, In terms of story with a book, it's deceptively light in, in the idea that the themes are pretty straightforward. Uh, The fact that she's with her dead friend for most of her life, that's a physical manifestation of loss. And you don't think it, you don't think that it, you know, maybe you don't process it um, in terms of, that, well, you know, her friend is dead, but he's he's still around. He's still interacting with her. But as you go towards the end of the book, you realize that at some point, you know, even even though she has this with her, she has to learn to move on. And a lot of what's poignant about the book is the fact that you think it's lighthearted. They're, they're really interesting moments, and there are a lot of really fun moments that I can identify with. Like, she can be bribed to talk to somebody she's mad at because free food. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, it's a really good sense of humor. Yeah, yeah definitely. it's really, really funny. Like at least in the early parts, I haven't gotten through the end. Right. But, there's, yeah. You know, it's the emotion there is pretty genuine. Um, it does suffer from some things that I see with a lot of indie artists and the fact that they always mention that or not always, but they often tend to mention things like art school, the artist <laughs> process, lots of stories that include that or even focus on that. And I'm not trying to be rude. It seems a little masturbatory at times. Um, well, it's in, that, that classic problem about people write about what they know. Right. And, you know, and if you're an artist going through art school and it's like you're going to be talking about college and art. Right. <laughs> you know. But I think what Renee does skillfully is the fact that she tones it down. She doesn't really focus on that. That just happens to be the world that this character lives in. And I appreciate that. Even as somebody who's very well acquainted with art and, you know, even trained in it, probably. Um. And there's also, when you talk about writing writing about what you know, it's nice to have little indications that she's from the South. There's just little restaurant scenes where they talk about where a character asks for regular tea, not sweet tea, not something you're familiar with when you're in California. But I know when Renee's sister comes to California to see me, she asks for sweet tea in every restaurant, and they sort of give her a blank look. <laughs> so it's, you know, yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of little cultural cues that just let you know that or it's, it's a nice indication of this sense of American, um, damn, what is that word? This sense of American regionalism, which is a common theme in American art in general. Like if you study the history of American art, that's one of the things that a lot of artists like to pride themselves on is that sort of is glorifying or not necessarily glorifying, but highlighting the differences between the different parts of the country. It's interesting to find them when you're aware of them. Right. It kind of reflects their culture that right. they grew up in. Even mm-hmm. though it's still technically America, there's still dramatic differences in culture from place to place. Right. And I think it might even be unconscious. Right. But, you know, being raised in California, it's definitely something that I notice. And it's pretty interesting to me. Well, it adds flavor. Yeah, definitely. it really does. Definitely. Yeah, I love the fact that, like, what is it, chapter two, they're going on a Savannah ghost tour. Oh, right. And, yeah. he, and one of the characters fakes a southern accent. Yes, fakes a southern accent. That's great. And the main character calls him on it, like, what the heck is yeah. that? And he goes, what? It's part of the act. Um, but, yeah, like, I was reading through this, and 
um, pull back the curtain a little bit. It has been a crazy week for both myself and JP. So yeah. we haven't been able to meet up with Joe and Pinku and kind of swap all the comics until really, really late. And so we both like, like read like 400 pages of comics in the past like 24 hours to really? yeah. catch up with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I <laughs> read job. at least 280 pages. Today alone, um, so yeah, that's my uh, kind of weekend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, I was like reading through this while we were setting up, and I was just like sheepishly grinning and like giggling throughout like the entire thing because I just found this really really hysterical. And there are these nice little subtle cues here and there that are really smart with the ghosts because the person that she's kind of the main character Janet, she's kind of a wallflower. Or, yeah, a wallflower. She really is kind of antisocial. She's got a friend who is just kind of really forcing her to go on a bunch of blind dates. And I know those people in real life, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I've been on both sides of those yeah, things in real life. Very, 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 very relatable. relatable. I mean, like, I'm not going to say they were archetypes, but I've met people that yeah. there are elements like I can recognize, oh yeah, I've been put in that kind of situation right. by people yeah. like that. Or I've met someone who would react that way or something like that. It was very human you know, not like these kind of fake plastic characters that are meant to fill a role and, and propagate a story. It, it felt like they were real people. Right. Come, and I, come to think of it, uh, character Janet reminds me a lot of the admin. <laughs> 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 Just stays in home and and plays on the computer and talks about art. It's <laughs> uh, just kind of a shut-in, but a really, really sweet character. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I love you, admin. <laughs> <laughs> we make so much fun of the admin when she's not here. I feel so bad oh, for her man. sometimes. She's not even here to defend herself. Yeah, there, there are times where, like, John and I are fun. editing the thing. We're like, the admin's so gonna kill us when she hears this. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I really love the characters. Like, even the ghosts are really, really cool and relatable. Um, totally, totally. Like, both the main characters, like the. Janet and the person that she's going on these dates with, Derek, they both actually have ghosts in their life. At first, you kind of see Carol, who is the ghost that lives with the uh, male character, Derek, is kind of a little jealous, like more openly jealous of Janet and kind of really, really hostile towards her at first. And whereas Paul's kind of like kind of saying it, it like is more keeping it stoic and trying not to say like I don't know this is awfully skittish I don't really like this guy you should try and dump him even though it's more out of jealousy kind of a thing and you get kind of like these really cool uh moments where Paul actually sneaks into the house on a date and is flipping through a photo album and you just get this quick little scene real quick where you see Carol kissing Derek and you're like, okay, well, there's more to it than they just used to be former roommates at, and one happened to die. So I've, yeah, it's just really, really kind of a cool thing. And the characters are not archetypes. They are, they feel a lot more fleshed out. I'm really, really enjoying yeah. the hell out of this book. I just kind of want to go home right now and read it. I'm done podcasting. I want to read it right now. And you can. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to have to, we're going to have to like flip for it. Rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> Rock, paper, scissors. It's on. Rock'em, sock'em, and I think because of that, the story really does have a sort of heart to it. And that's why when you get further in the book, when they have to actually address these things, it's a little painful. I mean, the first time I read it, it didn't really resonate with me that much. I got to admit, I, I had some, I, I was busy and preoccupied, but the other times that I've come to sit down with it, it sort of does, you know, 
it really does touch a chord with you because I think everybody's dealt with loss at some point. So, you know, it just reminds you of your own situation and it makes you go, well, yeah, you know, what's it like to let go of that person or, you know, what's it like to not? So really good, you know, really good. In terms of a rating, I think I would give it like a three and a half. And that's a really good rating for me. Like I said, the art is very solid. It's very developed. It's very conscious of itself. It's a very simplistic line art style with its black and white, uh, minimal toning. And so because of that, it's possible that the style might not be something that attracts you, but it's very legible, I have to say. Well, you know, I think one thing that I'll say about the style is that it's, it is simplistic, but you can tell that the artist behind the simplistic art, or the simplistic art is very skilled. Somebody who like is very much on purpose choosing to draw this way, and it's not at the very edge limit of her skill set. You know, mm-hmm. that's like, very de- deliberate. It's very deliberate. It's very consistent. It's very clean. You know, there's there's not like because I mean you you could argue that a lot of the time people go for a simplistic art style because they're not comfortable drawing right. something more complicated or comfortable having to present a character and have them look the same every time when it's more complicated. And if there's less to draw and uh, like you said, sometimes it's, you know, characters share sort of features, you know, then it's it's less you have to memorize and, and less difficulty trying to communicate the story than, you know, if you draw a character on one page and you draw them on the next page and it doesn't quite look right, you know, that's that's a challenge that, are, that you know, that an illustrator has to overcome. And this, while simpler, is like just so clean and so consistent. And like the consistency, to, I think, to me is really what sticks out is that it's like very much on purpose. It's very much it's very much like the same exact character and look and style every time. There's never really proportion you know adjustments or problems. Things don't ever look out of whack that you would often see in a style that expresses so much with so little um most of the time. It's just I don't know, it's very it's interesting. Right, right. And I you know, I remember a lot of um a lot of anecdotes that my friend would mention and how um in high school she would do things like oh really, really scrutinize her work, look at it backwards in the mirror. And that sort of thing, just to make sure, you know, because she's been developing this style for a very long time. So she, it's been under heavy scrutiny and her training in art school, it, it's reflective of that. If you go to her personal page or her blog, fridgewithfeet.com, you can see a lot of sketches she does and you can see there's, there's a lot of confidence there behind her work. Actually, if you go there, I believe what, the first 40 pages of Festering Romance the first, is up? The first two, first two issues oh, really? of it, yeah. as well as uh, some excerpts from the later stuff. Nice. Um, and of course, if of course, if you didn't catch the the URL, <clears throat> then it will it will be in the show notes. Yes, go to pandamanga.com, look at the blogs, yeah. show notes, and podcast.pandamanga.com. Yes, and you can look at anything, basically anything that there is a link to expand upon that we talk about in a podcast. You can find it at podcast.pandamanga.com in the show notes. Whether it's music, whether it's another artist, whether it's another, whether it's a book, whatever. You know, we will we will make every effort to link to. You know, anything that will be relevant to what we're talking about so that you can, if you're interested, learn more about it. And that should conclude our shameless plug of the week. Self-plug. Plug. Like <laughs> yeah, our shameless self-plug of the week. Okay. Uh, sponsored by Pandamanga.com for all your indie comic needs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> all of them. Just the che- all of them, apparently, yes. yeah. Brian is shameless. Very shameless. Very shameless. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I guess that... Uh, I guess that wraps it up. None of us. None of us. Oh, I have, well, I have, if anybody else, I would love to give a review on it of four and a half issues. I, wow. Yeah. 
I was really loving it. Like I said, I want to go home and read it right now. Um, but I have to fight John for it, and, which means I'll probably <laughs> lose. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, go, uh, I'll go downstairs and get the Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Sweet. It is, it is so on. <laughs> I, I only got uh, to the end of the second chapter, but I'll give it a solid four-issue read. Commitment. Yeah, I, I would, I would, I would, I would do more like a three and a half. I think that you know, like I like I expanded upon at length earlier. The uh, I like to have you know smooth, dynamic, you know, storytelling, visual storytelling, and this is definitely relies more heavily on text, and it also has a lot of uniformity in the panels. And mm-hmm. you know, yes, like Pinku said, you could use it's useful. That technique is useful when you would like to kind of underline or, or emphasize something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then whenever you break, because if you set up kind of a normal, whenever you break outside of that, it draws attention. Yeah. So you know that's neat. But for me, it, it, uh, it I, I haven't read enough of it to really decide whether or not it is. But but I can tell that it, it's uh, it's kind of walking that knife's edge of sort of monotonous with the frame pacing. And frame pacing is a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, it it doesn't feel like that yet. And I've read about two chapters of it. And so perhaps it's done in such a way and there's enough breaks from the, from the, from the style, I mean, from that kind of frame pacing that it, it works. But I could easily see something that is all, what was it, like three, three panels across and three panels down pretty right. much. Or sometimes panel. two and then three, yeah, two yeah. panels. But pretty much consistency. Three, yeah. It didn't seem like there was a lot of times where, you know, there was a panel that covered the entire top and then there was comprised of like two on the bottom or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very much kind of like, you know, square, 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 right. square, 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 square. It's sort and of logical. And it's, it's almost too logical. I understand what you mean. About right. That. So, I mean, it maybe is at risk of being monotonous. But again, you know, this is a 10 sort of score because I haven't actually had an opportunity to read it all. So. Right. Well, yeah, I just want to ex- explain a little bit uh, behind the 3.5 just because a lot of it lies in the art style and the heart of the story, but also I, I sort of get this underlying feeling that, you know, it really does feel like a first book sort of book where it relies on a lot of touchy-feely type things. Uh, the story, you know, can be a little emotional. And I've noticed that in a lot of books. Um, the most, the first example I can think of is uh, Brian Lee O'Malley's Lost at Sea. Uh, you might have heard of him. He's the creator of Scott Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. If you read Lost at Sea, it really has that same feeling where it's this sort of emotional ballad in terms of comic books mm-hmm. where, you know, it, you know, really great comic, really nice story, really technical, a lot of technical skill, but also doesn't feel confident. And that's mm. the same, the same feeling I get with this at the same time, you know, it's, it, it feels a little more confident than lost at sea, for example, but it still has that sensibility with it. Mm-hmm. It seems really personal. Right. Definitely. And, yeah. You know, I, I almost think she kind of looks like the protagonist, too. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, you know, you draw what you know, right? <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I feel like we really were able to cover a lot of material and hopefully give you guys, our listeners, some interesting things to read you maybe haven't heard of or thought about before. And uh, we will ongoingly try and dig up from the, you know, dark places of the comic world some some cool stuff that maybe you haven't heard of before. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, get you exposed to some fun indie stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think this is, uh, I think that's it for today. Thanks for listening this time. And we will be back next time with, uh, movies. Zombies. 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 Wow. Zombies is next. The zombies are coming. The zombies. Serious business. Yes. yes. Serious business. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Especially yes. with all the cannibal attacks recently. This is true, right? Yeah. We're going to have so much to talk about. Maybe I think there's been four confirmed, you know, uh, 
cannibalism cases in the state so far. I'd be interested to hear what the administrator and the eighth Henry have to say about it. I'm sure the eighth Henry will be very stern, <laughs> and I'm sure he will bring his crowbar. Yes, 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 and, and maybe we can finagle. Uh, the Magnificent Joe to come to a zombie podcast. I think I might be able to. Dude, screw the crowbar. We need to get him one of those things that we got from my roommate, the super, like, sledgehammer of death. Oh, man, sledgehammer was amazing. (laughs) Anyway, alright. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Geek Life. We always love to hear from our listeners. Please email us at geeklife at handamanga.com with your questions, comments, and insights. Anyone interested in becoming a PM contributor, visit our contact page at contact.handamanga.com and complete the form located there. Music has been provided by AirPlus Recordings. As always, links to the artists and songs featured on this episode are available in the show notes at podcast.handamanga.com. If you'd like more information about AirPlus Recordings, visit airplusrecordings.com. This is JP. We'll see you next time. How many dummies was that? <laughs> <laughs>